So we're in a series um, looking at world religions in seven sentences, and um, there are some suggested resources in your bulletin. Most of them are similar to last week. I added a few others on there as well. Um, In this series, week one and two, we looked at what is the Bible's explanation for there being a plurality of religions. If there's only one creator God, you would think there would be one religion. But the Bible gives an account of how that happened, how the many religions uh, began. And then we also ask the question is, who are the players behind those religions beyond the humans? Are there dark powers? Are there malevolent, supernatural, bad actors, as it were, behind the scenes of what goes on oftentimes in religion or occult practices? And then third week, we looked at um, the first worldview, atheism, and its sentence coming from Nietzsche is, God is dead. And we looked at the implications of that. We considered, how do you assess a worldview? And we said there's a couple different ways to do it. We saw some tools in which to do that. And then last week, we looked at the first actual religion, which was Judaism, kind of part one. And tonight, we're going to pick up uh, back where we uh, left off and do part two, finish that up, and then next week, we'll be on to Hinduism. So that's kind of where where we're going in this. Last week, we looked at the bumper sticker, the, the core statement for, for Judaism is the words that are said to Moses from the burning bush, and it's God uh, communicating who he is. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, and we looked at what, what does that mean? What is the meaning of this statement? What are, also, what are the implications to it? We saw that an all-powerful personal God who communicates in ways that are meaningful and rational and that you can use logic to understand also makes covenants with people. And that's how he works with people throughout history is through these covenants. And we saw many ways in which the God of the Hebrew Bible, he's very, very different than the other gods of the ancient Near East as far as his, um, what is it that he wants from his human creatures. He wants family. And it's something very, very different. All of them are are imagers of his. And then I told you, I said, uh, here's sort of some homework. Uh, Go home and read the Shema, because this is going to be sort of our, 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 our tipping point from last week to the content this week. The Hebrew Shema, it's recited by observant Jews typically twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. Um, And it's the most central affirmation of the Jewish faith. Um, Here it is, uh, this will be up on the screen here. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The reason it's called the Shema is because the word in Hebrew for hear is Shema. Shema Israel, hear. So for a shortened version, it's just, it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. That's it. Very, very simple. Very short. Now, what's interesting is this is actually a a fairly difficult Hebrew phrase to translate. There are no verbs. It's all, none. (laughs) 
And so the, there are five actual possible translations that it could look like. It could be um, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. It could be translated Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Three could be translated the Lord our God is one Lord. Or it could be translated Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Or finally, fifth option, our one God is Yahweh, Yahweh. So there's some question as to how it should be best translated into English, but all of them are getting at the same kind of core concept, or the same um, core idea here. Main point of the Shema is to express um, Yahweh's um, incomparability. No one is like Yahweh God. And the, he's, he's unique to all other divine beings, is the point in the ancient world. So to affirm this, as a, as a Jew, is to express your loyalty to this one supernatural being over all others. It's what you think about, you know, the, the uh, commandment. The very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's, that's fulfilling this commandment right here. Don't have any others before me. Express your loyalty only to me. And so this is the, uh, I would say, the bedrock claim of Jewish monotheism. So if we're going to get over the hurdle as Christians, followers of Jesus as not just Messiah, but a divine Messiah, um, we're going to have to show that worshiping Jesus and attributing to him attributes of Yahweh, it's not breaking the Shema. Are you with me on that? And so that's what I want us to do tonight. Does divine plurality in some way, violate the Shema? That's the question I want to look at. And if you have Jewish friends, this is the kind of vein or of conversation that is typically the sticking point, understandably so. So I want to show from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that there actually was plurality within God, the God of Israel, and it makes room for a first century Jew, these hearers, followers of Jesus, or those for his audience, to be able to accept and worship Jesus and affirm the Shema and not <clears throat> break that. So how can a first century Jew, for instance, like, you know, John, John writes, you know, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he's associating Jesus with Yahweh. Um, how can he come to believe and worship Jesus, how could they digest this idea? So here's what I want to do tonight. I want us to go through thematically, through the Old Testament, a couple of themes. Um, and so I'll kind of tell you what the overarching theme is. We'll look at some scriptures under that theme. I'll give you another theme. We'll look at some scriptures. I'll give you about three of those. And then my hope is that you'll see a picture that something is beginning to develop that you go, oh, the claims of the first follower of Jesus are very consistent with the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew understanding of Yahweh, the God of Israel, okay? First category, first bucket I want to give you. I'm going to look at some passages about the name, the name, that, 
and the angel of the Lord. I'm, I'm kind of smashing those two together, okay? The theme of the angel of the Lord and the name. And we'll look at what that is. Um, what do I mean by the name? Jews today, observant ones anyway, when they're reading their, their Hebrew Bible, when they come across, for instance, um, you know, Deuteronomy uh, 4, a 6-4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the divine name, the one that was given to Moses, Yahweh. When they come to that, they do not read the word Yahweh. They don't pronounce it. Instead, they substitute it with typically one of two things. Either Adonai, which just means Lord, or Hashem, which means the name. You with me? So when they read the divine name, most commonly they will say, oh, Hashem, the name. It's just the name. Okay? Well, there's this whole name theology that builds in the Hebrew mind. Let's, let's go to some passages here where you can, you can see some of this. Um, so again, first category, angel of the Lord and the name, and how do these two things come together? If you remember at the end of last week, I read this particular passage, Exodus chapter 3. This is the account of the burning bush, and I asked you the question, who was in the bush? You remember? You remember who was in the bush? Moses was keeping flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. Um, he's out in the wilderness. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Where? Out of the burning bush. So who's in the bush? The angel of the Lord's in the bush. Well, then we read a little bit further. Um, and Moses sees this. He says, it's not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why this bush is not burning. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside. Wait a minute, is Yahweh there? The angel of the Lord is there. To see God. God called to him out of the bush. So there are two, two in the bush. Isn't there a little phrase like that? One in one in the hand, two in the bush, something like that. I don't know what that means, though. Um, <clears throat> there's the angel of the Lord is in the bush, and Yahweh is in the bush. And so there's a little bit of like, okay, two are there. That's, <clears throat> that's fine. That's understandable. Um, what's interesting is this character, the angel of the Lord. Let's go to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, this is... Israel is taken out of, ex, out of Egypt, and they're going to the promised land, right? They're going to Canaan. And here's what we're told. Behold, I, this is God speaking, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now listen to this. this is an interesting description. Pay careful attention to him, Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Who's him? This angel. For he will not pardon your transgressions. Now, of course, the common Jewish question is, well, of course, no one can pardon your transgressions, but God. For he will not pardon your transgressions. Why is that? Because what's in him? In him? My name is in him. And you might go like, what does that mean? Your name, because your name is in him, he, he won't pardon your transgressions. So we're starting to see a mingling 
of Yahweh and this angel of the Lord. There's something going on there. The angel of the Lord, and what we find out, and we'll see this as we go, is my name, as God uses it, refers to his very presence or his essence. So think about that. My presence, my essence, it's in him, this angel of the Lord. Again, let's go to some other ones here. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Um, this is, okay, he's telling Israel, when you, go, when you get into the land, everyone who's there now has high places and they worship their gods all over the place. You're not going to do that. You're going to have one place. Eventually, it becomes the temple. That's going to take a long while. There's the tabernacle, but it's going to be a singular place. And he said, you'll worship me in one location because that's, I'm only going to be in one location. But how does he say it? <clears throat> he says, but you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all your tribes to put what? His name and make his habitation there. Now, again, I don't mean to be silly, but they didn't go and like write Y-H-W-H. It has nothing to do with the consonants of his name. To place his name there is where he says, I'm going to reside. My presence, my very essence, will be in that place. Okay? You tracking? So this, the name, is, is a way of referring to God himself, his very presence or his very essence. Um, I'm gonna, let me jump over to Psalm chapter 20. Another way. I just want us to see that this isn't just a random thing that happens. This is continually used in the Hebrew Scriptures to refer to God himself. <clears throat> Psalm chapter 20, verse 1. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, this doesn't mean bad people are coming after him and they write in the sand, Y-H-W-H, and they're, and they're protected. No, no. It's, it's saying Yahweh himself. The presence of God will protect you. And so the name is a shorthand way of simply referring to the very presence of God. I'm going to go to one last one here. <clears throat> this shows you what they actually call the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember um, David gets the Ark uh, uh, stolen? Israelites get the Ark stolen, the Philistines, and uh, things don't go well for the Philistines with God's presence because God's presence is the Ark. And so they like send the Ark back on a, on a, uh, a cart like with oxen. They're just like, go, go, leave, leave. And so, and so David gets the ark back, and they're bringing it back to the city. And listen to what we read as it describes the ark, which is the presence of God. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. What's it called? Which is called by the name, here it is. The name of Yahweh. That means you would look at the ark and go, oh, there's the name of Yahweh. There it is. There's the name of Yahweh. Because that's shorthand way of saying that's, there's the presence 
of Yahweh. The name is the same. Okay? I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but I want us to see this idea. The name is the very presence of God. And so it gets called that. Um, Isaiah chapter uh, 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, with burning, uh, burning with his anger and a thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, his tongue... Interesting. The name sometimes gets described as a person. So the name of God can also be described as a person or a personal being. Now, let's jump back to what we looked at before. Now, given all of that, what does the author mean when he writes this? I'm sending an angel before you to lead you out of Egypt, out of Exodus. He's going to go before you. He's going to deliver you. Uh, Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Are you seeing it? This being who is going before them, he's he's a physical representation there. He's present, physically present before them. He talks to them. They have to obey his voice. And we're told Yahweh's name is in him. We're going, man, that's okay. (laughs) That's kind of wild. Um, Let me go to, let's see here. I'll jump to Deuteronomy 4. Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. We read this. um, To you it was sworn that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. You heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And he, who's he? The Lord, right? God. He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. He brought you up out of Egypt with what? His own presence. Wait, I thought it was the angel of the Lord. Yes. But remember, his name was in that one. So you can refer to this being who who went before them as the angel of the Lord in in whom is the name, or you can refer to it as the very presence of God. Isn't that interesting? So, who, you know, who was it the presence that saved him, brought him out of Egypt? Was it the angel of the Lord? And you're starting to build. Now, again, think New Testament theology. New Testament writers, when they, when they think about all the things that Jesus said and did, they're pinging back to all of these things as they do their theology and try to think about, wait, who's Jesus? There, this is informing much of that. So we're kind of thinking their thoughts after them. Um, let me go to Genesis 31. 
Genesis 31, this is, uh, remember the story, Jacob um, falls in love, Rachel. He gets tricked, though. He has to marry Leah, the older sister, work a few more years for his father-in-law, Laban. And this whole time, there's, <clears throat> both of them are just deceitful. Jacob and his father-in-law and, you know, the animals that he's taking care of and all this sort of thing. Well, this is one of these times where uh, Jacob's been uh, exploited by his father-in-law, and Jacob has a dream. And listen to what we read here. Uh, Verse 10. So this is Genesis 31.10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes, and I saw in a dream that the goats that were matted and flocked, striped, spotted, all these sorts of things. Listen to his dream. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to me in the dream. Okay, who's speaking? Angel of the Lord. Listen to what he says. Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he, that's the angel of the Lord, lift up your eyes uh, to see the goats that mate with the flocks that are striped and spotted and all this sort of thing. For I, that's the angel of the Lord, have seen that Laban, what Laban is doing to you. I, Same speaker, in the God of Bethel. What? He just said he's the angel of the Lord. Well, he says, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and you made a vow to me. Interesting. Do you see how these are commingling in a weird way? If the author wanted to make it clear, he could do it. He's not sloppy. He's intentionally commingling these characters so that the reader's picking up on, wait, so Yahweh is like the angel of the Lord, but not? I mean, like, how am I supposed to think about that? This is one of my favorite ones here. Uh, Jacob is an old man now. He's He's on his deathbed. If you remember, Jacob has uh, the twelve, the tribe, the twelve tribes come from Jacob, and before he dies, he blesses each one of them. One of though, one of his sons, Joseph, he gives kind of a double blessing by giving it to his two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, so all the boys come before him, lays his hand on them, blesses them. When it comes to uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, the dad takes the boys over. Okay, you know, you know, get in front of your grandpa. He's going to bless you. And he puts the oldest one on this side because you always put your right hand on, on the sort of greater blessing on the oldest child, and you put your left hand on the younger child. And so he brings, he, and Manasseh's here, and Ephraim's here. And remember what Jacob does? He goes, <laughs> and the dad's like, no, what are you, what are you doing? And he prays this prayer of blessing over Joseph's kids. And listen to what this blessing, listen to what he says. He blessed Joseph by blessing his kids. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. What's what's he going to say the third time? The God, no, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, 
And the word blessed here, it's a, it's a, it's a singular verb, may he. Who? Yes. May he bless the boys. He could have said, if he wants to be clear, the author would say it would be a, a plural verb. May they bless the boys. It doesn't say that. May the God of Israel, the God of this, the angel, may he. Jewish authors see this stuff. I mean, they're, they're much more aware of the Hebrew Bible than we are. They're very aware of that there's this, and so something develops what's called the two powers in heaven or the two Yahwehs. And this was common Jewish theology up until a certain point. We'll talk about kind of when that, that changed. But you can see why they had this kind of Godhead understanding because there seems to be a plurality in Yahweh, and sometimes he's visible here, sometimes he's, but also still up there, and it's not totally clear exactly what is going on. Um, that was, let's see, that was a, what did I read? Genesis 40, 48, okay, thank you. Uh, let me go to, this is another good one here. <laughs> And again, I'm showing you a lot because I want you to see it's scattered throughout the story. We're not cherry-picking one or two. That's an odd way to put it. The book of Judges, um, Judges chapter 6, um, this is the story of Gideon. You remember Gideon? He's one of the guys that God uses. Israel's being oppressed, and so God kind of raises him up as a warlord to fight off the enemy and restore freedom again to Israel. And this is this calling. So here's what we have. Let me go up to uh, verse, I'm going to start in verse 11. <clears throat> okay, here's the call of Gideon. Let's see who's there. Now, verse 11, this is uh, Genesis 6, 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a tree. So where is the angel of the Lord? He's sitting under the terebinth tree. Okay. Um, Gideon's beating out uh, from the wine press. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So he saw him. He's a physically, I mean, he's seeing him. And he said, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? Wait a minute. Who brought them up out of Egypt? Was it the angel of the Lord? Or was it Yahweh? Yes. Did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us, given us into the hand of Midian. Now look at this. And the Lord turned to him. Wait, what? Turned to him? Wait, I thought the angel of the Lord was there. The Lord Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I, how can I save Israel? And then he gives this like... Uh, complaining 
reasons for why he doesn't think he's a good candidate. Kind of typical calling situation. Moses does that and all these others. And he goes, yeah, you can do it. You're going to go in my strength. So Gideon went into the house and he said, wait, okay, before you go, can I, can I prepare like an offering for you? Because he recognizes who this is. So Gideon goes in the house. He prepares a young goat, unleavened cakes, uh, flour, meat, puts it all in a basket, broth, brings it to him. Now, who's the him? Well, the author's not... Yahweh's there, and the angel of the Lord is there. Brings it to him under the terebinth and presented them, and the angel of the Lord... Okay, now we know what he's talking about. Said to him, take the meat and unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over it. So he did. Angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff, his hand, he touched it, it all goes up, okay? It's an it's offering. Interesting that the angel of the Lord is the one who the offering is given to. Um, and the angel of the Lord, let's hear, go down to verse 21. The angel of the Lord vanished from his sight, okay? Who's not there anymore? Angel of the Lord's gone. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. He thought, oh my, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But Yahweh said to him, oh, Yahweh's still there. Yahweh said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar to Yahweh and called it Yahweh is my peace. I mean, do you see how these characters are like, it's, what is going on? <laughs> you know, I just want the author to tell me who's there, who did it? And it's, this is all very intentional. The author very intentionally wants you to go, these things seem mixed somehow over. I don't like, how am I supposed to think about it? How am I supposed to understand it? Here's sort of the summary of this. The Hebrew Bible contains clear suggestions of a Godhead. Um, Yahweh as two figures. Um, as, as Jews, and so again, this is the question that first century Jews wrestling with. How do, I maintain the, how do I maintain the Shema, and yet this stuff's in my Bible? How do I make sense of that, that all this stuff is in my Bible? And see, this is what I would suggest to you. Um, this is what, for instance, the Apostle John this is all rattling around in the back of his head. When he writes his gospel, look at um, John chapter 1, verse 18. Okay? Look, how, look how unclear he is here because he's picking up the same thing. 1 John 1, 18 should be up on the screens here. No one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side has made him known. Wait, what? The only God is at the Father's side? Yeah. What? I mean, do you see what John's picking up on? He's picking up on his Old Testament theology. No one has ever seen God. Well, except one. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made God known. John is fully picking up on this. He's fully aware of this. Um, let me give you one uh, uh, video reference. If, if, if you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, have you ever watched those? Jump on YouTube, type in the Bible Project, and then this, it's a little bit of a long title, um, 
probably type in something smaller in the come, but how God is both one and three at the same time. And it's about an eight-minute video, and they do a wonderful job visually uh, communicating these conceptual ideas that are so abstract. <laughs> Bible Project, if you just even type in Bible Project Godhead or Trinity, I'm guessing it'll pop up. But the title of it is How God is Both One and Three at the Same Time. Okay, first category, we're, we're pausing. Angel of the Lord, the name. And we saw those two things, the angel of the Lord, and the, that isn't, that's beginning to inform our understanding of what does the Hebrew Bible teach about God, about his nature, right? Okay, new category. New category, the word, or the word of God. There's a lot less with this. This will be a lot shorter, so if you're worried. Um, I've only got about three verses I'm going to show you because it's, <clears throat> you'll see it pretty quickly. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, God makes his covenant with Abraham, right? And this covenant, look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in what? A vision. It's not, it's not a voice out of the sky. It's, a vision is something you see. It's an ocular experience you have. He's seeing the word of the Lord. Okay, what exactly does that mean or is going on there? Let me go to another one. You, you probably know the famous story of the little boy Samuel. Remember, his mother gives him to the temple, he serves under Eli, and he's a little boy. <clears throat> and when, when God first calls Samuel, here's, here's the account, and read through the story. I would encourage you to go back and, and notice the careful language issues. Little boy Samuel is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Why? No frequent visions. It doesn't mean the word of the Lord Lord's rare, they didn't have scrolls. No, they had scrolls. They had the texts. The word of the Lord here means they didn't have visions of God. That's what it's referring to. A vision is something you see. Go down to verse 7, same passage here. 1 Samuel 3, verse 7. Um, Remember, he gets up like three times. He thinks it's Eli calling him. He's like, hey, what do you want? He's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. It happens again. What do you want? I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Third time, Eli goes, oh, this might be God. Okay, here's what you do. Samuel, next time it happens, you say, your servant is listening. Speak. Because maybe it's God speaking to you. Now, Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. Think about what that means doesn't mean he didn't have any scripture or text. He's, they've got that. The word of the Lord hadn't been revealed to him, the vision thing. So he responds. He does this thing. I'm, I'm listening, Lord, speak, and listen to what it says. Yahweh came and what? Stood. He stood. <laughs> Calling as the other time Samuel. Samuel as the boy 
had done before. So we're seeing here this idea that, um, and then in verse 20, let me, let me jump down to that. Verse 20 we read, Samuel grows up, um, and verse 21, Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So are you starting to see this connection now? Yahweh and the word of the Lord, you're supposed to see kind of like this angel in the name thing. But are, are they the same? Are they different? But they're commingled. Are you seeing that there? The word of the Lord, it's personal. It's a person. Um, last one I'm going to go to is under this section, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> Do you remember the calling of Jeremiah? Maybe you've uh, heard this. <clears throat> the prophet is called by Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 reads this. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Same kind of response. But Yahweh said to me, Don't say it, I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. Then Yahweh put out his hand. He put out his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said, do you see this? The word of the Lord is said to be Yahweh and said to, in this particular, in physical form, he reached out his hand. So the word of the Lord is Yahweh, but also distinct from Yahweh and sometimes comes in a physical appearance. <clears throat> this is what... Um, John chapter 1, it's maybe one of the more famous passages of Scripture. If, if, if you crack open a commentary, what you'll oftentimes hear is, oh, John's picking up on Greek philosophy, the logos. Plato talked about the logos, and so John's just using Greek philosophy to try to communicate ideas about Jesus. No, he's not. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 1. I should be on the screen here. In the beginning was what? The Word. That's a, that's a very Hebrew concept. In the beginning was the Word, like the Word of the Lord. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing, not anything made was made. In fact, in Him was life, and He goes, I mean, do you see this? When John talks about the word, he's picking up on all of these old references. And he's saying, you know who Jesus is? He's the word of God who appeared to Jeremiah, who appeared to this place. John makes that very argument when he says, do you remember when Isaiah saw his vision and the glory filled the temple? And John goes, that was Jesus. The New Testament authors see Jesus in the Old Testament, not, not trying to, not like, boy, I really got to try to find something about Jesus here in the Old Testament. No, if, if you're a careful reader, you see 
oh, it's this weird, not totally clear plurality to it, and what's the how, and I don't know. But I can still claim, here, Yahweh our God, He is one, He is unique. And yet Jesus and the Father and all these sorts of things were running out of time. I've got too much material here. Uh, I'll, I'll save some of this for our week on Christianity. Um, I'll probably return because there's a few more buckets that when you look at this bucket and what the Old Testament is saying about this picture is emerging of a God that allows you to affirm the Shema and at the exact same time to worship Jesus. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me go to one, one last place because this is uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 resurrection has happened. There ha uh, his female disciples have made claims that they've seen him, that he's resurrected. His male disciples are not buying it. Um, <clears throat> do you remember he meets these two on the road to Emmaus? And it says they were kept from seeing him. I don't know exactly what that means, but they didn't recognize him. They think he's still dead, and they're walking, and they're downcast, and he comes alongside them walking, and he says, what's going on? <clears throat> and they said, are you like the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? And of course, the irony is he was the only one in Jerusalem who knew what was going on. But he plays along, tell me about it, what happened, what's so bad? And so we're told that they, they begin to recount to him all the things that had happened. We had hoped, we had hoped our Messiah would do this, but instead... This happened to him, and he was taken advantage of it, exploited, and now he's dead. But, and now there's even some crazy claims that some of his female students have said that they've seen him, but we don't, we don't think it's true. And there's this fascinating passage. If, if anyone said to me, what one sermon do you wish you could actually be at that Jesus gave? It'd be this one. It would be this one. Because here's what he says. Luke chapter 24, verse 24. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things, enter into his glory? And I love this part here. This is the summary. Darn it, Luke, why didn't you get the whole thing down? Beginning with Moses, that's the Torah, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the truths concerning himself. I wonder where he went to. I wonder what passages he pulled. Do you remember that time when <clears throat> Jacob, he did this? And you remember what he said? And they go, yeah. Do you remember this? Do you remember that moment? Yeah. Would you remember? Yeah. That was me. That was me. And so we have to realize that Jews had a category. When Jesus showed up, Jews had a category for the second Yahweh figure. Now, and they even had a category for him showing up embodied. What they didn't have a category for was he passed through a woman's uh, birth canal. And it's this Jesus of Nazareth who just didn't seem that special. You'd think he would be a little bit more important-seeming. 
And this was all a part of Jewish theology. In fact, one of the books that I mentioned to you, Alan Siegel, he's a Jewish man. He passed away a few years ago. He's not a Christian. In his book, he goes back and documents all of this theology was in Jewish theology up until the second century A.D., if you think about it, that's an interest. It was at that time that it was declared a heresy. Well, you could imagine why. I mean, understandably, you're losing converts like crazy because they're going, man, the second Yahweh figure from the Old Testament that we've been talking about, it was him. And so they finally said, okay, we're just, we're just done, you know, done with that theology. That's now heresy. <laughs> but as we engage in relationships, even with some of our Jewish friends, if we can demonstrate the old, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament anticipated this. It anticipated the coming of Jesus. And so if you were a first century Jew and you were told that this, this man who's the second Yahweh figure, he died for you, but then he rose again and he conquered the death problem that started on page three of the Bible. And he took away the authority of those dark powers that are behind all the religions of the nations. Now he has all authority. And now he's sending you with this message to go proclaim this is what God has done. This is how, how he has acted. This is what Yahweh God, the amazing story he pulled off that we couldn't quite figure out. And that's what we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the consummation of, of, of that plan in the moment of Jesus' death. If you didn't grab any elements, feel free to get up and go grab some in the back there. What I would like to do is I want to give you guys 60 seconds. I'll, I'll keep my eyes on my watch. 60 seconds to just reflect, to ask God, what would you say to me this day before we all take communion together? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done in time, space, history. Thank you that what, what we read about in Scripture, just as we discover the beauty of what you have done, God, would, you, would that expand our hearts Expand our capacity to love you, to be in awe of our God. Go with us this week. Empower us, empower us strengthen us, and encourage us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I want to close with this um, benediction and send you out. Given, you know, given our, our, our topic tonight, the very last words that Paul writes to the church in Corinth in his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, he writes this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the triune God go with you. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next Wednesday. We'll be talking about Hinduism. <laughs>